beginning in verse 14. 1 Timothy 3, 14. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for all that you are to us, that you have made us complete in Christ, that we lack in nothing, that you have given us your very nature and your divine power for living a life, God, that is pleasing to you, a life of godliness. I pray that we would just again have our hearts strengthened in the faith, Lord, and that we would see your goodness and your design, and that we would yield to you for you to live, to be, and to do in us of your good pleasure. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> we are coming close to Easter. That'll be in two Sundays. And next Sunday um, is Palm Sunday. And for a number of years now, we have been um, using that as an opportunity to have some of our church family share um, their faith story, their life in Christ and how the Lord has, has ministered to them. And so that's coming up um, next Sunday. I won't be preaching, but we'll have those testimonies. I hope that you'll plan on being here. It's always a real rich encouragement to hear of God's activity in each person's life. The reason that, that we do that is because we want to, to make clear and to remind ourselves that church is not about just preaching and proclaiming a truth, but it's about seeing also God reveal himself in us. It's about being reminded that we each are a miracle of God's redeeming grace and that he is at work in us to express himself and that what we are today is not what we were, nor is it what we will yet be. That God is alive and at work and indwelling those who have placed their faith in him. We are living letters. And so we are being, we're hearing every Sunday from the written word. And it's good to be reminded on occasion of um, visibly of the um, living letters that each of us are in Christ. And that's a great introduction to this section of scripture, which is on the mystery of godliness. Um, Paul has been talking about um, the need for um, a certain kind of qualification on those who are deacons and elders. He's been talking about the need to pray for all people. He's spoken to women and how he would have them to conduct themselves in church. He's even mentioned some about false teachers and how they take people away from the centrality of Christ. In a nutshell, he's been talking about godly living and what it looks like. And now in, in verse 14, he, he's bringing it together. And so this is probably in many respects the, the cornerstone um, of everything he's saying in this letter. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, 
But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. So I'm writing to you so that you would know how to conduct yourself. And then he speaks about the nature of the church. But before getting into that, how you might conduct yourself. And then verse 16, and by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. We are to conduct ourselves in godliness. And yet godliness is a mystery. We'll look at that in a second. So back to the nature of the church. What is the church for? And there's three things he says here about the church. He says, first, that you may know how to conduct yourself in the household of God. Household is another word for sometimes the family of God. And Paul was very fond of using family descriptions. He talks about brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, and um, God being our father, but we are to relate to older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, sisters, women as sisters. Um, and so he uses family imagery beginning in chapter 5, but in all of his letters. This is the family of God. As you walk with the Lord and, and, and grow in him, I think we all have, have had the, the experience and the personal understanding that truly the closest people that we have in our lives are not blood, but they are those who share the same faith in Christ. And it's great when your blood also shares faith in Christ, but they often don't. And no matter how close you may be to your brothers and sisters, there is no one closer than a brother or sister in Christ. We are the family of God. He also says, he speaks of us being the church of God or the assembly of God. There are, whenever people get together, right now when um, the Republicans, especially Trump, are having his, their, his rallies, and there's been on the news just recently a lot, um, there haven't been just Trump supporters been there. So it hasn't been an assembly of Trump. It's been an assembly of others as well. And so there's been a lot of pandemonium at those assemblies. But the church is to be the assembly of God. We assemble in the name of God. We come before the Lord and we come as the people of God. Sometimes people ask, well, you know, should churches be seeker-friendly? Should they be churches that, that are geared toward the lost? I think this would speak against that. It is the assembly of God. And so we come as a congregation, as a people of God, to come as God's people into God's presence together. Not that the building puts us in God's presence, but we come in the name of the Lord as the people of God to assemble before God to hear God. And then he says the church is the pillar and, and, and ground or pillar and support of the truth. And again, so basic imagery, but, but so important. Um, the bridge going into his hill is, has all but washed out in the floods that have been going on over the last 20 years. And so now the county is getting serious about replacing that bridge. And so I had a meeting this week, Brian and I did, um, with one of the, the top guy in the county that's, that's responsible for making those assessments. He has his experiences with, is in hydrology and that kind of stuff. And so um, he's, saying to, he's explaining to us how those pillars work and that the pillars are not supporting the bridge. They have supports under them. And the support is supporting the pillar, which in turn the bridge rests on. And Paul is using the same imagery here, the pillar and support of the truth. The pillar is a thing that's elevating 
the bridge. But there's a support underneath the pillar. And so it could be that Paul is saying that the church is God's means for the truth being elevated, for the truth being put on display. But it is also God's means for the truth to be upheld, to be supported. And it's, it is the church's sole responsibility. In other words, it's not God hasn't given this responsibility to anybody else. It is the church, the assembly of God, that puts the truth on display and is there to support that, to, to, to protect it, as it were. So we don't make the truth, we display the truth. We don't define the truth, God has defined the truth. We live out the truth, we proclaim the truth, we practice the truth, that is our role. And so if we, if we compromise on this, who else is going to do it? It is the church of the living God that is the support and the, and, and, and the, and the foundation of the truth. No one else. We are. And so, we, and, that, and that obviously comes back to the person of Jesus Christ because we understand we're not just proclaiming truths, but we proclaim Christ and we live Christ displaying him in our lives. The truth ultimately is the person of Jesus Christ. The amazing privilege that God has given us. And so when the world is redefining truth, go ahead. It's not our business to redefine truth or even to define truth. Our business is simply, humbly, to proclaim what God has said in his word. And in such a way that the focus is always brought back on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the truth. Now, having said that, he moves now into the mystery of godliness, verse 16. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. So the ultimate truth that the church is proclaiming and supporting is the truth of Christ and what a godly life is. I wonder if we were to just answer that on a piece of paper, what is godliness? What we would all put down. And I wonder if, if a much of it would be things that we are supposed to do. Things that are like God that we are supposed to do. We sometimes forget that the root idea of godliness is God-likeness. The root idea behind goodbye is God-bless. The root behind holiday is holy day. And the root behind godliness is God-likeness. And so the mystery of God-likeness is how is it that fallen man is to behave in a way so that God is seen. So that you see God, that we look like God. We behave like God in our homes, in our businesses, in our relationships, that any other person could look and say, that person shows me what God is like and I see it in truth. Now that is a mystery. How does that happen? Well, that's what Paul is speaking about. And in these verses, the rest of this verse 16, he makes six statements, and all of them are about Christ. 
He was revealed in the flesh. God revealed in the flesh. God became a man. Now we're starting to get to godliness. When God became a man, Jesus said in John 14, if you've seen me, you have seen God. So he's moving us toward what God-likeness is by taking us to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God was revealed in the flesh. The invisible God was made visible in the humanity of Jesus Christ. He was vindicated in the Spirit, which would refer to the miracles and in particular the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 1, we're told that God declared Jesus with power by the resurrection to be the Son of God. And so the most dramatic, powerful way that God could prove who Jesus is, is through the resurrection. But it also involved all the miracles that were taking place. The Spirit was proving through those miracles who Jesus was. He was beheld by angels. Probably speaks of his, of his position in glory. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world. And he was taken up in glory. He ascended into heaven. Now, it, it seems to me that it's helpful, it's helping, helped me at least, to read through these six statements by pairing them up in a way that's not immediately obvious. But there's a, a, a Greek... Um, um, form of, of, of or Greek device that was often used where they, it was called a chiasm where they would take, make a pattern where they would have point one. If there were six points, there would be a linear flow of thought as there is here, but the first point would relate to the sixth point, the second to the fifth, the third to the fourth. And that seems to be a little bit of what's going on here as well. He who was revealed in the flesh, taken up in glory. He became a man, but he didn't stay here on earth. He was taken up into, into heaven. He was vindicated in the Spirit. He was, and the, the Spirit said, this is who he is. And in response to the Spirit's declaration of who he was, people believed on him in the world. He was beheld by angels, but he was also proclaimed among the nations. However we take all this, it is clearly from beginning to end about the person of Jesus Christ. And so some way, Paul says that the way to explain the mystery of godliness is to put your attention and focus on the person of Jesus Christ. So what is the connection then? Okay, the mystery of godliness has something to do with the person of Christ. I went through and looked up all the times that mystery occurs in the New Testament. It is not a reference to something that is just hard to understand, but rather it's a reference to something that was not previously revealed in the Old Testament and could not have been known unless God made it known. And so with that in mind, the New Testament speaks of the mystery of the kingdom of God. It speaks of the mystery of the rapture. It speaks of the mystery of Christ. Well, that's interesting, and that's the most common reference to mystery in the New Testament is simply mystery to Christ. Well, Christ is not himself a mystery. Christ is revealed in the Old Testament. So much so that even the unbeliever, Caiaphas, would say at the trial of Christ, are you the Christ, the Son of God? He was an unbeliever, and he he knew that the Messiah, the Christ, had to be the Son of God. 
It's the same thing that Nathaniel said when Jesus said, while you were still sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living Christ, the son of the living God. It's the same thing that Peter in his confession, who do men say that I am? And, Jesus, and Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so clearly there was much knowledge by a high priest and all the way down to common fishermen who understood, based on the Old Testament, that the Christ was the Son of God. Adam and Eve had told to them in Genesis 3 that Eve would give birth to a son who would crush the serpent on the head. And they understood that they were, talking, they were being told about the Savior who was to come. So the Savior is, repeat, is revealed all through the Old Testament. So then what can the scripture mean that Christ is a mystery? Well, the scripture tells us. And one of those mysteries and the aspect of Christ is that in Christ, everything in this world is going to be summed up. That's in Ephesians, the first chapter. That they're in view of the administration where all things will be summed up in the person of Christ, that everything is going to be brought together by him. There is the mystery, we're told, of Christ and the oneness of the church and the oneness of Christ himself, which is imaged in a wedding ceremony, that a man and woman become one. And this, he says, I'm speaking of the mystery of Christ being one with his body. There is the mystery, we're told, of Christ who makes Jew and Gentile one. In Colossians, a whole chapter devoted to that. Um, Actually, in Ephesians, a whole chapter devoted to to God making Jew and Gentile one. That is not something that was revealed in the New Testament. We're told in the mystery of of Christ himself again in Colossians 2, chapter 2. But one of the most fundamental passages, basic passages in understanding this is in Colossians chapter 1, where we're told the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Christ is the mystery of God, not his person. He was revealed throughout the Old Testament, but his work, what he accomplishes. He brings Jew and Gentile together. He forms a church and is one with that church. He's going to hold all things together and bring all things together in his person. But Christ in us, the mystery of Christ is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Now he's getting to the issue of godliness. We all want to be other than what we are. Our spouses want us to be other than what we are, right? And that never changes. We want to be different than what we are. And what we want ultimately is that our lives would be a better reflection of Jesus Christ. That what is true of him would be true of us. That is God-likeness. Why am I not more like God? How can I be more like God? And what we're told is the mystery of Christ is the mystery of God in us. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Or in other words, the hope of being more like God. Christ in me is the way that that is worked out. The mystery of godliness is the mystery that God, and this was not revealed in the Old Testament, So much in the Old Testament about God and God wants his people to be a holy people. Well, how do I get from here to there when there is in infinity? There's no more hope for me to become like God in my own strength than for a worm to become a man. It's not going to happen. It is a miracle. It is something that God has to do and God does it through Christ indwelling us. That is not something that was revealed in the Old Testament. Now, 
I really appreciate so many different writers on this. And, and I tell you, it's where our hearts ought to be drawn is to those who write and bring us to the person of Christ and to the significance of Christ living in us, of God being in us. Major Ian Thomas wrote a whole, whole book on this, on this subject. And he calls it The Mystery of Godliness. Wonderful book. And in one place he says, Godliness is a mystery. Fail to grasp this fact and you will never understand the nature of godliness. In other words, again, the, the idea of mystery is not that it's hard to understand, but it's something we could not understand unless God reveals it. And God has revealed what godliness is through the very life of Christ who came as a man and lived as a man. Now here, think about this, and Major Thomas points this out. If, if God had become a man and lived as God, we would not say that Jesus was godly. We would not say that Jesus was godlike. We would say he was God, right? Because God can't be godly. God can't be godlike. He is God, right? So when we say that when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen God, He's saying, you have seen a godly man. So that tells us he was not living as God. He was living as a man who was godly because it was a man, not God, you see? So he was fully God while he lived, but he wasn't living as God, or we would just simply say, he's God. But scripture describes him as godly, as God-like. And so that's in reference to his humanity. And we're seeing in that how godliness is manifest in us in the same way that it was manifest in him. And as God, he speaks as a man. And as a man, he's saying, I never do anything of my own initiative. Nothing. That's why if you've seen me, you've seen God because it hasn't been me. It's been God living through me. And so he even says, I'm not even doing the miracles. God's doing them. It's the Spirit who is vindicating the Son. It wasn't the Son vindicating Himself. God was proving Himself in the man. And so Major uses the illustration, and I think I remember him doing this. He was a clever fellow. He has some kind of little low voltage thing going on in his coat pocket or something, battery somewhere, and he would hold up a light bulb. This is the only one I could find in the church today, other than these big three and four foot bulbs, and I didn't want to swing one of those around. And so I found this little overhead projector light bulb. Now, Major points out, great illustration, that no one has ever seen electricity, but we see light. No one has ever seen God. John chapter 1, no one has ever seen him. But Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. And so this light bulb on its own cannot produce light. But if, is, if it is connected to an, an invisible electric current, it shows, it lumens. You see light. And this little light bulb produces a lot of light. I practically blind you if, if I had it turned on. But it has no capacity in itself to put out light. It is a vessel for light. The Word of God says in John chapter 1 that the life, I'll just read it. It says, in him was life, and the light, and the life was the light of men. 
In him, to use the illustration, was electricity. And the electricity was the light of men. Take away the electricity and you don't have light. When Adam and Eve sinned, the life of God left them. And from that point on, they ceased to be godlike, to be godly. Because there was no one in them demonstrating himself through them. And so the, instead of being bearers of light, they became bearers of darkness. And that's, that's been the history of humanity. And ever since, man has been saying, how can I be like God? I want to be like God. I don't like to be where I am. Well, it takes God being back in the man for God to be seen in our humanity. That is godliness. Take a man away from the source of life and you won't see the light of God in the man. All you're going to see is darkness. And so the light bulb can try to shine light. It can tell you I'm shining and try to convince you that it's shining. But it's not until the electricity is flowing through the light bulb that it doesn't even have to say anything. It is proof that there's electricity. And it is not in itself. And all it has to do is just be. It doesn't have to do anything. Just be. And let the electricity do what it does. And you're going to see the light because of the life that is connected to. That's exactly how the scripture there in John 1.4 is, 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 is revealing it to us. The life. He is the life. And, and the life is the light of men. Godliness is due to God. It is not due to men any more than light is due to the light bulb. God did not create you to just have an ape-like capacity to imitate God. So even though God says, imitate me, well, good luck with that, right? We had a neighbor at his hill that used to have two big parrots, I guess more precisely, macaws. Too close to the name of the macaw for, my, for comfort, actually. And so I prefer to call them parrots. And those parrots, he, he would release them, and they loved to fly to his hill. And they would swoop down after people sometimes even. They're a bit of a nuisance. But they were around so commonly for several years, because parrots live next to forever. And so these parrots were around for years. And the common thing that people would say when they saw one of these parrots, they'd look at it and they'd go, look, a parrot. Well, guess what the parrot started saying? Look, it's a parrot. And so the parrot would land on a power line or a tree or something, and people would point at it, and before they didn't even say anything, they would hear the parrot go, look, it's a parrot. It's great. The owner of those parrots doesn't know Jesus, and I, I really tried to teach those parrots to say, Jesus loves you, because I wanted them to say that to the owner when he got back home, and they'd quit coming to our property probably. But a parrot can, a parrot can imitate but you don't see the man in the parrot, even though he has imitated the man. God doesn't want us just to have an ape-like relationship with God. That's not a relationship, to have a parrot-like relationship. He, he wants to actually manifest himself in us and through us, that when you see the person, you can, as Jesus said, see God and know what God is like. And I'm telling you, one of the ways that comes about is by acknowledging I am a bulb with no power in and of myself. To come to that place of brokenness, that if anybody's going to see any good thing in me, I have no power to make it happen. 
I have no power to love my wife. I have no power to be the friend, the boss, the father, the brother, nothing. Nothing that I want to be. I am absolutely bankrupt, devoid of all power and all ability to be what God wants me to be. And God wants me to be like him. I'm telling you, if we were to begin to grasp what God expects of us, God-likeness, oh my word, that is what God is after. And it is a demand. This is why he saved us. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. He has saved us so that God would be seen in our lives. It ought to bring us to the end of ourselves. But we shouldn't stop there. Because it's not a doctrine meant to, a truth just meant to, to crush us, but it's meant to bring us to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That God is alive and he indwells me to be in me what I could never be. So he didn't come just to tell me what to do and how to imitate him, but to actually indwell me. Godliness or God-likeness is the direct and exclusive consequence of God's activity in the man. It is not the consequence of your capacity to imitate God, but the consequence of God's capacity to reproduce himself in you. This is the nature of the mystery of godliness. Amen. I love that. Let me read it again. It's great. God-likeness is the direct and exclusive consequence of God's activity in man. It is not the consequence of your capacity to imitate God, but the consequence of God's capacity to reproduce himself in you. This is the nature of the mystery of godliness. The moment you come to realize that only God can make a man godly, You are left with no option but to find God and to know God and to let God be God in you and through you, whoever he may be. I tell you, so many times I've heard people say, I hate that phrase, let go and let God. They should read the book that has that title. It is an excellent little book. Let go and let God. And I just hate that. It just makes the Christian life passive. Try illuminating. You're a light bulb who has no power to illuminate itself. It is not a passive life. It's a life of recognizing your inherent bankruptcy and inability, and you come to God and say, God, you alone do it or it's not going to get done. Now, that's a life of rest, I'm telling you, because you can't do it. God alone can do it. And you say, God, this is what you want. I believe this is why you came to live in me. It's not just to get me to heaven one day, but you actually have come to live in me through faith in Christ so that you could show yourself in me. Well, it's never been my job. My job is to simply stay connected to Jesus and to trust Jesus to be and to do what I could never be or do. So God, thank you for what you're going to do. And I'm telling you, that's when, when we come to that place of just saying, thank you, God, for what you can do, which I could never do. And we begin to see God manifest himself, and you don't even know that he's doing it. I don't know why, just recently I thought of something I hadn't thought about in probably 30 years. I was working at his hill as a camp counselor, and I was in charge of the rifle range, and we had a terrible system for setting up targets. We used to clothespin them to wire. Well, wire gets shot a lot, and so the wire breaks. 
And so every Saturday when camp was over, I was down at the rifle range stringing up new wire. And so I found, that, and the way that the wire was attached to the, to the creosote post was through, by horseshoe nails. And so they were big horseshoe nails. And so they got to be dug out every Saturday. And so I found the simplest way to dig out those big nails was to get a big, extra big um, slot head screwdriver that belonged to my roommate who worked on maintenance, and he was quite a few years older than me, and he gave me permission one time to use a screwdriver. So I would go down there with a hammer and screwdriver every Saturday, and I would pound out those horseshoe nails, string up new wire, and pound new nails in. Well, one day, his screwdriver broke. And so I went, bummer, broken screwdriver. Well, I'd been raised, return something, everything you borrow, return it in as good or better shape then you borrowed it. That's just how I'd been raised. So it wasn't even a matter of, of demonstrating Christ or anything. It was just a matter of just basic character. You borrow it, you break it, you pay for it. You know, it's just, you, you replace it. And so, but I'm working at his hill almost 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so I had very little time to get to a hardware store and replace it. So I took his broken screwdriver and put it back in his tool pouch. And it took me over a week to be able to get to a hardware store. I think it was two weeks before I could find an identical or close to identical screwdriver and replace it. I never said anything to him just because I didn't see him. He had a different job than I did. We shared the same place, but I was never in the place and he was never in the place. And so, lo and behold, I, just, you know, I finally replaced the screwdriver. And then we had a testimony time at his hill. And this guy stands up and he goes, um, a couple weeks ago, he never used my name. He says, but um, somebody borrowed my screwdriver. And without telling me, they broke it and put it back. And I was mad enough to kill. And I went, oh, my word. And he never told me. You know, I was mad enough to kill. And I'm just going, wow. And he says, but, he goes, also without telling me, that person got another screwdriver as close to identical as he could find and on his own time as little time as he has and as little money as he makes because we got paid five dollars a week he went out and bought another screwdriver and replaced the one he broke and i just want to tell you that i was completely wrong and i see jesus in the guy something like that and i'm just going wow you know little thing and 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 i just go it was so natural to just do the right thing. And, it was, and I know it was, my parents raised me that way, but it was more than that. The Spirit of God convicted me, reminded me. It was just natural to do the right thing. But doing the right thing in the right way at the right time is supernatural. It really is. I mean, really, the, so much of the Christian life is just do the right thing, right? But it takes the supernatural power of God to consistently do the right thing, even to do the right thing one time, really, in a way that Christ is going to be seen. We can't do it any more than this light bulb can light itself up even one second. And we can no longer reveal, no more reveal Christ for one second than a light bulb can light up on its own power for one second. It takes Christ. And he lives in us to make himself known. The moment you come to realize that only God can make a man godly, you are left with no option but to find God and know God and let God be God in you and through you. 
This will leave you with no margin for picking and choosing, for there is only one God, and He is absolute, and He has made you expressly for Himself. If you do not enter into the mystery of godliness and allow God to be in you the origin of His own image, you will seek to be godly by submitting yourself to external rules and regulations and by conformity to behavior patterns imposed upon you by the particular Christian society that you have chosen and in which you hope to be found acceptable. You will in this way perpetuate the pagan habit of practicing religion in the energy of the flesh. And in the very pursuit of righteousness, you will commit idolatry and honoring Christianity more than Christ. Wow, it's good stuff. If you seek to be godly apart from God, you will reduce godliness to, con- to conformity to a set of standards that either you or somebody else has imposed upon you. And that's exactly where the next chapter of this is going. Just briefly, because we're not going to develop it all this morning, but right in chapter um, 1 Timothy there, let me get back to my Bible. First Timothy chapter 4, next thing he talks about this, this form of religion, this, this form of godliness. He doesn't use those words, but he's talking about that where he says in verse 2, By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created and to be gratefully shared. So they're focusing on externals. They're focusing on behavior. Colossians chapter 2 is even a better passage, verse 16. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or respect to, of a, to a festival or new moon or Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of that which is to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from which the whole entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth which is from God. God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? These, to be sure, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Try to conquer the flesh by just crucifying the flesh. Good luck with that. You tell me when you've done that. And I'll go talk to your spouse and see if you've really done that. You can't do it. Try to just put off the old man in your own strength. Try to be something that you, other than what you are. Man, I tell you, as a junior high boy, I got in the habit of cussing. And I wasn't so much in the control of it that my, under the control of it that my parents didn't know, what, they didn't know what was going on. But man, as soon as I got on the, at the school grounds, I cussed with the best of them. Junior high boy, because it was cool to cuss. Well, God was convicting me, and I tried to stop. And I realized, I can't stop. Well, isn't that what James says? The tongue is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Who can control it? This small flame that sets on fire a whole forest. I couldn't control mine. And I had one of my first come-to-Jesus moments. Because I realize as a young Christian boy with a filthy mouth, I'm not in control. And I said, Jesus, take this from me because I can't set myself free. 
and he did. Godliness is the activity of God in the life of the believer. And it is not something we can manufacture or produce. If we could, then we would be the explanation for our lives. And God would get no glory. And he gets all the glory. It is not about us, but it's about him. And he gave his son for us that we could live lives that make Jesus known. And he didn't just die for us. He rose from the dead to live in us. That what is true of God could be true of you and me as we let him be God. As unpleasing as that phrase is to some people, it is nothing. It is, it is not passive. It is actively trusting God and allowing God to be what only God can be in our lives. What a privilege we have. The mystery of godliness, that God can be revealed in our lives. The lives of his people, the assembly of God, the support and pillar of the truth. But it's not about just proclaiming the truth. It is about the truth, Christ is the truth, being revealed, expressed in our lives in everything that we say, do, and think. Lord Jesus, I'm not adequate for this, but this is why you saved me, that God would be seen in humanity. The invisible God would be made visible in our lives. This is the mystery of godliness. And what a privilege we have. None of us are adequate for it. As soon as I said, what a privilege, I looked over at my wife and I'm going, I fall short. Because <laughs> she's a reminder. She's not trying to be a reminder. But you can't live together and not face the truth about yourself. But every time you're reminded of who you are, it's an invitation to come to Jesus and let him be who he is in us. And he is sufficient for these things. And it is a life of rest and peace and joy because we're not striving to be what we should be. But we're trusting him who lives in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 We strive according to his mighty power that works within us. Not according to our power, but his power. And we thank him for what he is doing, even when we don't always see it. But he is at work. And next Sunday, we'll have three of our family share about God's work in their lives. Something we're all seeing, but it'll be good for them to talk about it. And we'll learn more about God's work in their lives. He's a living God, and he lives in us to make himself known. I'll close us in prayer. Thank you, Father, for the truth, again, of your indwelling life and the mystery, Lord, that has been revealed to us, not just made known intellectually, academically, but made known experientially. Man, God, that you would be willing to come near, to inhabit us. And we know that as God, who spoke this whole universe into being, you are more than able, God, to bring life through us, your very life. And we acknowledge, God, that it is your life, the life of Jesus, which is our light. And we have no light apart from Christ, who is our life. Father, I pray that as we talk to others who are in defeat and in discouragement 
and are tempted to throw in the towel and say, I've tried the Christian life and it doesn't work. Use us, God, to encourage them that the Christian life was never about performance, never in it. The Christian life is Jesus. And trusting him, allowing him to be in us and through us all that he is. Living before you in the same way that Jesus did. Independence. Doing nothing of his own initiative. And in this, God is seen. Thank you, Father, for your wisdom, for your power, for your majesty. All praise and honor and glory is truly yours and yours alone. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>